0: If you guys have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22, the very last verse, is where we're going to begin this morning. Acts chapter 22. I love that fourth song that we sang. Uh, the, the chorus says, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise, right? It, it's this wonderful line that that when we understand the truth of who God is and what he's done for us, that will naturally result in praise and glory and honor to him. Like when we when we are consumed with the idea of what God has done for us, what he means to us, then that will naturally produce within us a praise flowing from our lips, th- flowing from our actions. And so uh, this morning, I don't know what you came in with. I don't know what has been going on in your life. I know the, the weeks uh, may have been difficult for you. It may have been uh, full of struggles and strife. You may have had uh, a, a tough time recently, but my prayer for you this morning, for every single one of us, is that you would be captivated by who God is and what he's done for you. That that, that the the good news of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ would, would just blow your mind and that that would wash over you with just a, a calming peace from God that, that you would Understand who God is, what he's done for you, and that that will naturally produce a a joy in your life and a praise that will flow forth regardless of what's going on and what you brought uh, with you this morning. So that's my prayer for you as we we get into the word. Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 30, is where we're going to be. If you remember from last week, uh, Paul is in Jerusalem. He finally made it. Uh, He is there after chapters of of heading to Jerusalem. He's finally in Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. He tries to reassure the Jews that he's not a threat, that he's not a heretic. Uh, It doesn't go well. A mob breaks out to try to kill him. He gets protected by the Roman Tribune. He tries to speak on his behalf and proclaim the gospel, and it doesn't go well again. A mob breaks out to try to kill him. He gets protected again by the Roman Tribune. And this is what we see in verse 30 of Acts chapter 22. On the next day, Desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, the Roman tribune unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all conscience up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth, And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee a son of the Pharisees, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. When he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes in the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in the man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Let me pray for us. We get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word is powerful that it contains the, the beautiful message of the gospel, that, that you are a God who loved us enough to send your son Jesus to die on a cross for us, and you're a God who's powerful enough to resurrect Jesus from the grave to give us eternal life by placing our faith in Jesus. God, your grace and your love knows no bounds, knows no ends, and we can read that and know that and see that in your word. And Father, I pray that your, the glorious good news of the gospel, your grace, your love would wash over us this morning. We would behold your glory and it would change everything about us. God, I pray that we would leave here better than when we came because of our time in the Word. God, I pray that you would shape and mold us in the image of Jesus because of our time in the Word. God, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us, a heart that is ready to apply it. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, do you guys know what it's like to be right in an argument and to still lose the argument? Right? You know how frustrating that is? Or maybe you have a group of friends, and they all believe that the moon landing was fake. Right? And no matter how well you construct an argument telling them that the, uh, the moon landing did, in fact, happen, they all still agree that the moon landing is fake, and you lose the argument. Right? Or maybe you and your spouse have been going back and forth about how to pronounce a celebrity's name. Right? The one I've heard most often was Gal Gadot. Uh, who played Wonder Woman, like, maybe you've been going back and forth on how to pronounce the, the celebrity's name and, uh, and you know how to pronounce the name correctly. But no matter how great your arguments, no matter the fact that you're right, your spouse still doesn't believe you and uh, still pronounces the celebrity's name incorrectly. Right? I'll give you an example from my own life. That was extremely frustrating. Uh, it involves the board game Sorry. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but Disney in 2001 came out with their own version of the game Sorry. And it was a staple at my house for family game nights growing up, right? We loved Disney Sorry. And the thing about Disney Sorry is that if you had uh, in addition to the normal sorry rules and the normal sorry cards, there were special cards that you could draw that would give your uh, team a, an extra advantage. You'd be able to do something extra. So for example, if I was the red team, which is the villains in Disney sorry, and I drew a red eight, I was able to move two of my pieces forward eight. Right? So you, if you draw your own card, you get a special move. Well, the card that created arguments in my family was the, the number five. So if you drew your colored five, if I drew the red five, I was able to move one of every other person backwards five spots. right? So the problem is that the rules were a little unclear. right. I don't know if any of you were involved in creating the game in 2001, uh, or if you know anyone that made the game in 2001, but I have notes because the game the rules were a little, We're a little unclear about what happens if your piece is in the safe zone. That's that little line between the regular board and your home, right? That's the safe zone in normal sorry, and it's the safe zone in in Disney sorry. And uh, what the rules say is that you can move backwards out of the safe zone. You cannot move backwards into the safe zone. And if you're in the safe zone, you can't get knocked out by a sorry card. Because you're safe, and no one else's pieces can be on your safe zone, right? So you're safe from sorry cards. So my argument, which is the right one, my argument was that the only thing that the safe zone protected you from was the sorry card, right? Just like in normal sorry. And it doesn't protect you from me moving you back five spaces when I draw my special card. That, that was my argument. My family's argument, and because and it's, it's vaguely in the rules, right? Vaguely in the vague rules. It says you can move backwards out of the safe zone. So I think I'm right. My family uh, said that it's called the safe zone, and so you're safe. That was all they had to go on. And they voted me down every single game night. And if I drew a five, I couldn't move anybody out of that spot. It drew a lot of uh, uh, arguments in my family. And, and I, was, I was right. And even though I was right, I still lost... I still lost the argument, right? Now obviously it's a little tongue-in-cheek. There's a possibility that I was wrong. You can decide for yourselves. But <laughs> but it is frustrating to be right in an argument. To to have all of the facts on your side to, to be one, or at least to think that you're right. It is frustrating to be right in an argument and to still lose the argument. But Paul. At this point in Jerusalem, that's exactly what he has experienced, right? He has made his way to Jerusalem, and he has, he has proclaimed the good news of salvation to the Jews there in Jerusalem. And he's, he's right, right? Right? There is salvation in the name of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died and rose again to provide us eternal life. He has provided, uh, he has proclaimed the good news of salvation in Jesus. And his Jewish brothers and sisters there in Jerusalem have fought against that, have reacted violently against it. They've rejected that message and they've threatened to kill Paul. And Paul is sitting in a Roman barracks because he's right in his conversation. He's right in his arguments. And they, the Jewish... Uh, brothers and sisters in Jerusalem still rejected him. And we're going to see that trend continue uh, for Paul as he stays in Jerusalem. What we see this morning is that the Roman Tribune, who Paul was staying with, had no idea what was going on, right? All he knows is that a mob violently broke out against Paul, and when he tried to figure out what they were accusing Paul of, Nobody could tell him. They were all shouting different things, and so he didn't get anywhere with, with that. And so he allowed Paul to give it a defense, to give an opportunity to speak to the crowds. And then Paul shared his testimony, shared the gospel, and the crowd, the crowd reacted violently, and, and a mob formed to kill him again, and so the tribune didn't get anywhere with that. So the tribune has no idea what's going on. Right? He has no idea what the actual charges are against Paul, what he's actually done wrong why people are mad. And so this is what the tribune decides to do in verse 30. He says, the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, the tribune unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So what the tribune decided to do is he got the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem and he gathered them all together, including the high priest, for this kind of preliminary uh, fact-finding pre-trial. Right, that's kind of what was happening. So they, he dropped Paul in front of them, in front of all of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. There's this, what's called the Sanhedrin, this group of uh, Jewish religious leaders, and included the high priest. And they were all supposed to just judge Paul, rule on whether or not Paul violated their law. Right, what it, they were supposed to explain exactly what Paul was doing wrong. And so they sat Paul down in front of the Sanhedrin. And this is what Paul says in verse 1 looking intently at the council. Paul said, "Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day." So when Paul is placed before the council, the first thing that Paul does is he defends his innocence. Right? He affirms the fact that he's right. <laughs> like what he what he's told them earlier in the last chapter in Acts chapter 22, what he told the Jews about Jesus is Correct. What Paul reminds them is that he was a faithful Jew, and he tried to stamp out Christianity. He tried to, to get rid of Christianity once and for all because he was such a faithful Jew. He was someone who, who desperately wanted uh, God's glory to be known. He wanted God to be followed, and so he thought Christianity was telling a lie about God, was telling a lie about Jesus, and so he tried to destroy Christianity. But he met Jesus on a road to Damascus. And when he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he realized that he was the one that was wrong about Jesus the whole time. That Jesus really was the Son of God, died and rose again to provide eternal life, to provide salvation for those who had placed their faith in him. So he realized he was wrong, and and naturally the next thing that Paul did is he started following Jesus. He he, He realized Jesus was the one worthy of honor and praise, and so he started to follow Jesus, and he began to share the message of the good news of salvation of salvation in Jesus Christ to everyone he came in contact with. Most of the book of Acts is following Paul on his journey to go tell people about salvation in Jesus. So Paul says, I followed God. I tried to stamp out Christianity because I thought that was the right thing to do. And then, uh, and then I met Jesus and I realized I was wrong. And now I follow Jesus since then. And so Paul says, I have lived my entire life before God in good conscience. My conscience is clean about how I've lived. I am right about Jesus. And how does the council respond to this good news of salvation in Jesus? The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So Paul says, I'm right about what I said about Jesus. And the high priest says, uh, I don't believe you, and he kind of makes a motion, or he said a word, or something, and the guy next to Paul just smacks him in the face. Right, can you you can imagine like the frustration building up in Paul? Because again, he's right. <laughs> He has met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He knows that there is salvation in Jesus Christ, and he's trying to convince the Jews that there is salvation in Jesus and that they, they've been wrong about Jesus and the, and the salvation that they have been waiting for is available to them in Christ. He is trying to convince the Jews he's right about Jesus, and here he is before the leaders of Judaism, right the ones who have been waiting for a Savior, the ones who are protecting the law, trying to, to lead the, the Israelites, the, the Jews, well, trying to lead them in a way that honors God. He's sitting before the leaders of Judaism telling them that the Savior has come, that salvation is available in Jesus, and he's, he's proclaiming this good message, and then all of a sudden, like in, despite the fact that he's right, he's being punished for it. He's sitting there affirming the fact that he is innocent, and all of a sudden a right hook comes out of nowhere and connects with his jaw and his lip starts bleeding and and his face starts stinging and you can imagine the frustration building up within Paul. He's right and he's still getting punished for it. He's innocent and he's getting smacked in the face. He's making good arguments for faith in Jesus and they are still rejecting it. Paul is human and Paul reacts as Many of us would in this situation in verse 3. Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. So Paul lashes out and, and, and he lays into the high priest. The high priest gives the order, has Paul punched in the face, and, and Paul lashes, just, he finally has had enough. Right? The frustration is built up, and in his anger, he lashes out back at the high priest, and he says, God is going to strike you. Right? It's a judgment, a curse on the high priest. God is going to strike you down. And what he does is he proclaims and, and, uh, and shows everybody the hypocrisy of the high priest in this instance. In the Old Testament law, in Leviticus 19, verse 15, it says, No injustice should occur in the courts. You should show no partiality, and the, the main idea fleshed out later in uh, Leviticus 19 is, is essentially you're innocent until proven guilty. And so here's Paul sitting there proclaiming his innocence, and against the law, the high priest orders Paul to be beaten. Right, so here's the, the, here's, the, here's the high priest sitting to figure out whether or not Paul broke the law, and while he's sitting in the trial, the high priest breaks the law. And right, so Paul is pointing out the hypocrisy, and that's why Paul calls him a whitewashed wall. The image here is something that looks nice and clean on the outside, but is actually shallow and empty. Right? And Paul says, that's you as the high priest. You are nice and clean on the outside. It seems like you have everything going on. Uh, you have everything together. Uh, but really, you're just a shallow human being with absolutely nothing of value behind you. Right? It is a stinging critique based really in the hypocrisy that the high priest is showing. And Paul is lashing out against the, Roman, uh, against the, against the high priest. And we understand that. Right? We understand his frustration. If we were in a similar situation, we know how angry we would be, how we may want to, to lash out. But, but we're not supposed to celebrate Paul lashing out here just because we empathize with him. Right? We're not supposed to agree with this outburst Just because we like Paul, Paul's the good guy, and and we can see ourselves doing the exact same thing. Look with me in verse 4. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So after Paul lashes out against the high priest he makes this big outburst this pronouncement of judgment this curse against the high priest after after all of this everybody else who's standing there in the room is shocked at this outburst from paul and a group of them cry out to paul and they they say you're going to talk that way to the high priest right in that moment paul could have doubled down and he said yeah i'm going to talk that way to the high priest did you see what he just did to me Yeah, I'm going to talk that way to the high priest. I'm right. He's wrong. (laughs) He could have doubled down, but that's not what Paul did. Because in Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, in the Old Testament law, it says you should not revile or curse a ruler of your people. So Paul recognized that this outburst was against the law. This outburst is something that he should not have done. And so what does Paul do? He walks it back. Notice his tone in verse 5. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. That, that translation, I did not know that he was the high priest, is, is probably not the best way to communicate what, what Paul said there, because it's very unlikely that Paul didn't know who the high priest was. That would be like most people in America not knowing who the president is. right? They, it, was, it was very unlikely that Paul didn't know who the pri- high priest was. More than likely... What Paul was communicating here was, hey, in my hasty response, in, in, in my lashing out, in my outburst, just in the moment, it didn't cross my mind that he was the high priest. And I should not have, have reacted that way. What we see is Paul attempting to keep his composure in the face of injustice, He's trying to to hold it together to to keep his composure even though he's right and he's being treated unfairly. Even though he's making good arguments and they're being rejected. Even though he's trying to share salvation and the crowd is is going against him. In the midst of all of that, he's trying to keep his composure because Paul knows that lashing out at these Jewish leaders aren't going to get them to follow Jesus. (laughs) Reacting harshly, to the Jewish leaders is not going to get them to agree to his case and drop any charges. Paul is attempting to keep his composure in the face of injustice. And and what a beautiful example for us. I think there's a a lesson in here for for all of us, even though it's not the main idea of the text, but there's a lesson in here for all of us that when we are treated unfairly or when something is inconvenient uh, against us, very rarely is lashing out ever going to bring glory to God. Very rarely is responding harshly to somebody ever going to help make Jesus known. If we're in a restaurant and a waiter messes up our order, responding harshly to them or passive-aggressively to them is not going to make God famous. It's not going to bring glory to the name of Jesus. If we're at work and a coworker undermines us or fails to give us credit for something that we did, responding harshly to them or, or trying to, to talk behind them in an angry uh, manner, trying to put them down, it's not going to bring the name of Jesus fame and glory and honor. Responding harshly is not going to help people place their faith in Jesus. And just like Paul was trying to keep his composure in the face of injustice, you and I can and should keep our composure in the face of inconveniences for the name of Jesus. Paul, even though he's right and is making all of these good arguments, they're being rejected and he's trying to keep his composure. And look with me what happens in verse 6. Paul takes a scan of the room. He's been conciliatory. He's apologized. He He didn't apologize for what he said. Right? He didn't walk it back and say, I mean, it was true. What Paul said was right and true, but he did apologize for cursing the high priest, for doing something that he should not have done, for reacting in a way that was not right. And he, he walked it back, and he takes a look at the room, and he says in verse 6, Now Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees were two groups within Judaism, and they hated each other. They did not have uh, a lot of similar beliefs. They both believed in the Old Testament, and that's about it. A lot of their beliefs differed, and they did not like each other. So Paul recognized this, and look what he says in uh, the second half of verse 6. He cried out to the council, "I, uh, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So what Paul's trying to do here is he's continuing to make his case. He's continuing to put out a good argument. What Paul is doing is saying that his beliefs, that Jesus rose from the dead and talked to him on the, on the, uh, the road in Damascus, his beliefs are not different, are not contrary to Jewish beliefs, particularly the, the Pharisees' beliefs. Like it is within their understanding of the Old Testament law that he proclaims that Jesus rose again, uh, and talk to him on Damascus. It's not heretical, is what he's arguing. And what he's hoping to do is to divide the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees so that a debate will start. And when a debate starts, he's hoping that that will bring, bring to everybody's mind the fact that his views are within the commonly accepted views of Judaism, right? that he, he's not a heretic, he's not preaching against the Old Testament, that his views are acceptable. But notice what happens in verse 7. Excuse me, verse 7, it says, When he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the uh, the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. So far, so good. Paul got them to divide. He got them to debate with one another. That's exactly what he was hoping. Verse 8, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And so Paul recognized that the Sadducees do not believe that there's a resurrection. And the Sadducees also don't believe that you can be contacted by an angel or a spirit. The Pharisees believe in all of those things. And so when Paul says that that Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus talked to him on the road to Damascus, he's saying that I am fitting right within what Pharisees believe. And it's because I believe what Pharisees believe that I'm on trial. And so he's getting them to debate with one another, hoping that they'll recognize that that he's not a heretic. But look at how that goes in verse 9. A clamor arose, a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So he got the debate that he wanted. And he was hoping that they would weigh the merits of his arguments and show that he's right, that what he is proclaiming is true, and it's not heretical based on Judaism, that Jesus is alive, that he rose from the dead, that he provides eternal life and salvation to those who place their faith in him. He's hoping that this debate would produce good results. And what happens is that the debate debate becomes violent. Right, there's a small group of people that say, yeah, we like this guy. We, we think he's right. But most of the group, the Sadducees, refused to believe what Jesus taught. I mean, what Paul taught. And the Pharisees, even though they should have been on Paul's side, they refused to believe in Jesus. So the crowd becomes violent with one another. They become violent with Paul. And the tribune has to step in once again. For the third time in two chapters, the, the tribune has to come in and drag Paul away so that they don't murder him. Thinking that he's going to get torn apart by this crowd. So now Paul is sitting there, hand in his, uh, head in his hands, frustrated, frustrated despondent, sitting in the barracks once again while an angry mob is outside trying to kill him for the third time in a row. This is not at all what he wanted. It's not at all how he thought it was going to go. He arrived in Jerusalem with the hopes of leading his Jewish brothers and sisters to Jesus. And he shared with them the message of salvation, the the hope of eternal life, and they have rejected it. He has been punished and beaten and threatened and almost killed three times for teaching the truth. In the midst of his sadness and sorrow and frustration and despondency, in verse 11, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have, been, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So in the middle of this frustration and sorrow, Jesus visits Paul. And I want you to notice the way that Luke describes the encounter. It's not just that the Lord spoke to him. Verse 11, the Lord stood by him. So while there's an angry mob outside, refusing to believe in the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus is meeting with Paul. And while there's an angry group outside refusing to believe that there's salvation in Christ, the resurrected Jesus tells Paul that he did the right thing. He testified to the truth about him in Jerusalem. And he encourages Paul, saying, you're going to continue to testify the truth about me in Rome. So at Paul's lowest moment in Frustration and anxiety at his lowest point, Jesus visits him and comforts him and encourages him and affirms once again that he's right, that he believes what is true, that he is preaching what is true. Like, it's not an accident that Jesus says, "You have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome." And is once again an affirmation that Paul is right in preaching Jesus. And in believing in him, even though the entire crowd outside rejects it. And this is what I want us to see this morning from the text. The glory of God is shines through the gospel, not through our arguments. Paul made excellent arguments in defense of Christianity. Paul shared his own story, and as we read in Acts chapter 22, Paul assumed that his own story should work because they knew him. They knew that he was, he was trying to put an end to Christianity. And so this 180, because he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, should have been a testimony that worked, that convinced them to put their faith in Jesus. He, he knew that his arguments were good. And Paul put forward several great arguments to the Jews that they should put their faith in Jesus. But they all still rejected it. They all still turned away they all still hated him for it and so even though paul made great arguments he still lost the argument the good news is that the gospel shines i mean the glory of god shines through the gospel not through our arguments there are three uh, three applications i think we can take from this idea i'm going to go through them quickly the first application for us from this idea is don't try to argue people to jesus You're not going to convince people to become Christians because you have great arguments. There's this whole field of study within Christianity called apologetics, or or making a defense for the faith. And the whole point for a lot of apologists, for a lot of people who study apologetics, the whole point is to create this, this airtight argument for Christianity. And don't get me wrong, there are a lot of great arguments for Christianity, there are a lot of great arguments in belief of a God. There's a lot of arguments in belief of the resurrection. There are great arguments and defenses for the things that we believe. But the reality is that Paul had great arguments, Paul made great defenses for the faith. Paul used everything in his arsenal to try to convince the Jews in Jerusalem to put their faith in Jesus, and they still rejected Jesus. You will not argue somebody into the kingdom of God. You will not argue somebody to put their faith in him. If you and I are going to interact with one another and we're going to interact with the world and try to get the world to put their faith in Jesus, we're not going to do it because our arguments are perfect, our reasoning is flawless, and we've handed them the perfect defense of the Christian faith, and then they'll naturally become Christians. Right? I feel like for so many of us, there's the idea that if we can just say the right words in the right order, people are naturally going to become Christians. But the reality is that what we proclaim is true, but that doesn't mean that that's going to make them put their faith in Jesus. Don't try to argue people to Jesus because it will not work. If we're going to share the gospel, we want to do it well, right? We want to try to think of ways to present the gospel in a way that's going to, to bridge barriers, to bridge gaps, to remove obstacles. And we want to try to use... Uh, apologetics, good arguments, good defenses, as a way to to help remove barriers to the gospel. But the end goal is not to win the argument. The end goal is that they would see the glory of God in the gospel. If I'm talking to someone who does not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, what I can do is I can make several great defenses, historical defenses, uh, uh, literary defenses, several great arguments in favor of the resurrection. But even if I prove the resurrection of Jesus definitively, that doesn't mean they're going to put their faith in him as Lord and Savior. So my arguments, my defenses, what they serve to do is to remove a barrier in their mind for putting their faith in Jesus. I'm removing one intellectual obstacle on the way to them putting their faith in Christ. But I cannot make them put their faith in Jesus by my arguments. Don't try to argue people to Jesus. It will not work. But the related second point to that, second application, is take comfort. Take comfort in knowing that you don't need to have all the right arguments and you don't need to have all the right answers in order to share the gospel. It is so comforting to me to know that success doesn't look like winning the person to Jesus that God's not up there with a scorecard determining whether or not we succeeded if that person places their faith in Jesus. What does Jesus commend Paul? like if, If any of us are looking at Paul and his ministry in Jerusalem at this point, it is a complete failure. He hasn't won a single person to the Lord that we know of. He has been rejected by everybody that he shared the gospel with. And in fact, all three times that he shared the gospel, a violent mob came to try to murder him. That's about as big of a failure in ministry as you can possibly have. So if any of us would look at Paul's ministry, we would think it's a failure in Jerusalem. But Jesus comes and he stands by Paul, Jesus himself, and says, Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. Jesus himself comes to Paul and says, You did the right thing. You did exactly what I was looking for. You proclaimed the gospel. You shared what is true and right. You shared the fact that there is faith uh, and there is salvation available in Jesus. Our scorecard is not trying to make sure that somebody else places their faith in Jesus. I get nervous when I share the gospel, when I begin to evangelize, because I, I feel like I have to say the right thing, and I don't want to mess something up. And so I've, so many of us just don't evangelize because we're worried that we're going to say the wrong thing, we're going to mess something up, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to mess up the conversation. But you're not going to make the person that you're talking to any more lost. Right? And unless I proclaim a different gospel, then I'm going to do my job by sharing them the message of salvation in Jesus. The glory of God, the love of God, the grace of God, shows through the message of the gospel, not our clear, well-worded, well-reasoned arguments. The, power, the, the, the thing that has power from God the message that is empowered by Jesus, the message that that provides grace and love and shows us the glory of God is the message of salvation, not our clearly well-worded arguments. So take comfort in knowing that you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have every defense. You don't have to get everything right. What God is calling you to do is not to make sure that the person you're talking to places their faith in Jesus. God is calling you to just share the gospel. Share the good news of salvation in Jesus. The third application is this. Trust in the gospel, even when nobody else does. Trust in Jesus, even if nobody around you places their faith in Jesus. It's easy to put your faith in Jesus and to say that you're a Christian when everybody around you says they're a Christian. It is easy to say that you trust in Jesus in a culture and a country that for most of our history has been favorable towards Christians. It is easy to say that you're a Christian and call yourself that label and to say that you trust in the gospel when everybody else around you does the same thing. But the reality is that the truth and the truthfulness of the gospel is not a popularity contest. It is not determined by popular vote. And even if everybody else around you decides to give up following after Christ, even if everybody else around you decides they're not going to believe in God, and they make fun of you for believing in a magic sky king and his zombie son, even if everybody turns against Christ, it doesn't change the fact that the gospel is true. It doesn't change the fact that God is still on his throne, that Jesus is still alive today, and that salvation is still available through faith in Jesus. The truthfulness of the gospel is not determined by popular vote, so trust in the gospel, even if nobody else does. Paul is right here. There is salvation in Jesus, even if nobody he talks to will believe it as America grows increasingly post-Christian and people move more and more away from the faith, it will be easier and easier to have a faith that wavers and to walk away from Christianity when everybody else does. But the fact of the matter is that we should trust in the gospel even if nobody else does because the glory of God shines through the gospel. The love and the grace of God pours out and and is is, is lavished upon us through the good news of salvation in Jesus. Trust in the gospel, even if nobody else does. There's some of you here this morning, and you have a faith that wavers. If everybody else around you decided to abandon the faith, you would be hard-pressed to keep following after Jesus, because it doesn't matter if you've grown up in church, if you've been at church for a long time, if you've uh, said a prayer, signed a card, been baptized, uh, it doesn't matter that you you say that you're a Christian, you identify as that your entire life, you have never fully understood and comprehended the, the glory of God in the gospel. You have never been mesmerized and captivated by the glory of God in Christ Jesus. In the gospel, we're able to see that God loves us enough that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for us. We get this little glimpse as the the curtain is pulled back, and we see just a little bit of the glory of God through Jesus, his love, his grace, his kindness upon us. And you have never been captivated by the love of God, captivated by the grace of God. You've never beheld the glory of God. So you can say you're a Christian, you follow the rituals, you've done all the steps, but you've never been captivated by the glory of God in the gospel. And so if everybody else around you decided to walk away from the faith, you would probably do the same. This morning, what God is calling you to do is to do what the Pharisees wouldn't, to do what the the Sadducees decided they wouldn't do, to do what the crowds outside of of the barracks decided they wouldn't do. What God is calling you to do this morning is to place your faith in Jesus, to trust in him as your Lord and Savior, to behold the glory of God, to experience the, the life change that occurs with the gospel, to experience the love and the grace and the kindness of God, an unending portion this morning, if that's you, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I want to give you the opportunity to experience eternal life in Christ. In just a second, I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to sing. And as we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. I would love to to pray with you. If you wanted to come up here, I would love to pray with you. And then there are people who would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. We have people in the back as well. If you uh, don't want to come up to the front, we have people in the back who would love to talk with you about what it means to put your faith in Jesus, to experience the eternal life that he provides. And we pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the good news of the gospel. And I thank you that no matter if If everybody else decides to reject it, God, it's still true. And we know it's true. We have experienced the eternal life that comes from Jesus. We have experienced the hope and the grace that you pour out upon us in Christ. We have experienced the the eternal life that you provide. Father, I pray that we would constantly be reminded of the truthfulness of the gospel and that that our understanding of the gospel would change everything about us, God, that we would move forward fully convinced of the fact that there is life and resurrection from the dead, hope and joy in Jesus. Father, I pray if there's anybody here who does not know you, those here who who have a faith that wavers, who claim they're Christians but God have never actually experienced your grace and your love and your kindness I pray Father that this morning would be the morning that they would come to know you they would make that decision to behold your glory to be captivated by your love and grace that you would change them this morning I pray that your glory would shine through this gospel message we would stop trying to to make the best arguments. We would stop trying to to put all of the the impetus on us, all of the the effort on us to try to convince people to follow you, but God, that that we would do what you have called us to do, and we would share the gospel so that your glory could be made known. People could come to place their faith in you. God, it's in the name of Jesus that we